0: Hi there and welcome to the Book Realities Podcast, a series of interviews with independently minded authors where we explore their books, their writing techniques, and what made them become a writer in the first place. I'm your host, Ian Hooper, and as well as being an independent author, I also run the Book Reality Experience. Hi everybody and welcome to another Book Realities, our series of interviews with authors and today we're joined by Angeline King, the author of Dusty Bluebells and The History of Irish Dancing in the North of Ireland and quite a few other books besides. Hi Angeline, how are you?
1: Hi, very well thank you, good morning.
0: Good morning and that gives a clue that you are not in Australia the same place as me, so whereabouts are you?
1: I'm in County Antrim in Northern Ireland
0: Excellent. And I know it well, because you're actually in my hometown of Larne on the northeast coast. That's right. Oh, good stuff.
1: Beautiful place. It is. And you were born and bred there? I was indeed. And then I escaped for a few years and then I came back.
0: <laughs> and when you say you escaped, mm-hmm. were you escaped to be a writer or why did you escape? And where did you escape to? Oh,
1: no, no, no. I worked in business. First of all, I was... Um, I escaped as a student and went to a few different places. I lived in France for a year because I was studying French and then once I'd finished university I lived in America and then Holland and then came back here when I was just hitting my 30th birthday.
0: Very good. So if you went to France and Belgium you're fluent in French and Belgique and German and Spanish and everything else?
1: Well, Belgique is a great language. <laughs> yeah, I speak French and I learned Dutch when I was in Holland as well, and that helps with the Flemish when you cross the border too.
0: Very good. Yeah. Now we're going to come on to language as well because um, your latest book, that Lesional Press are bringing out for you, is originally written in English, but this yep. version of Dusty Bluebells has
1: been translated by you into Ulster Scots or Scots, whichever you want to call it. Um, So yeah, it was in English. There was a lot of dialogue in Ulster Scots, so you know yourself, the way people speak around here. They say canny instead of can't, and they say dinny instead of don't. And there's lots of really cool words that you don't really find um, elsewhere in the English-speaking world, and that's because they're not English words, they're Scots words. Um, So we would say things like, uh, she's a wee skitter. I don't know why that one's come into my head this morning. There was a, an incident that happened just before the school run that made me think of that. <laughs> um, so that's, um, skitter just means a wee, well, I was going to give you a, another Ulster Scots translation. I was going to say that just means she's a bad wee article, but that's not really going to help either, probably, do <laughs> <laughs> to, get, to get the drift anyway. <laughs> so, so all those words we use daily, and we don't really kind of appreciate how different they are to um the way people speak elsewhere. We just kind of would always have thought they were English words. So yes, the book is now um, adapted. It's written in the Ulster Scots narrative. So um, from page one, we've got Ulster Scots uh, in the narrative. We don't have to wait until the dialogue. Very good. But, and like, we should, explain,
0: them, we should uh, explain for people that perhaps were not gifted like we were in being raised in uh, North Northern Ireland. Skitter is a young person who has done something cheekily or um, not brattish, but less than brattish, but not straight and narrowish. So a little scallywag or something along those lines.
1: Yeah. About your little girl has destroyed all your makeup, or something like that. You would sort of automatically in your head think the wee skit, or that kind of thing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and that's a very good example that you've obviously come up with, completely the top of your. Obviously, just came up with that off
1: the top of my head. You know, it's <laughs> <That's> never happened.
0: <laughs> oh, very good. So, when did you start writing? When was your first uh, entry into writing, or did you do it at school, or how did you how did you want to become a writer?
1: Yeah, I definitely was very conscious that I wanted to be a writer, even probably at primary school. There were little indicators. I remember reading um, a book by Joan Lingard, who was a Scottish author who happened to live in Northern Ireland. And uh, she wrote um, a series about two characters called Kevin and Sadie. And I remember reading them and being conscious at the time. I really like this. I want to do this. And then somebody when i was i think 11 my brother got a commodore 64 for christmas and i don't know why packaged up in that commodore 64 was a free book the secret diary of adrian mole and i remember reading it and thinking again oh i like this i, I just i want to do this so I was definitely conscious of it but i just didn't know how to go about that um i come from a very sort of you know average working class background where there aren't any authors in the family, there's no sort of um, uh, example to follow. So it took me a long time to figure out how to finally do that. And I suppose that comes with having a bit more confidence as you go through life as well. I know that I tried to write when I was living in Holland. I I have a little um, floppy disk and it says on it novels and poems and I've no idea what's on it. I just know that there's not very much on it. It's probably like a paragraph of a novel. (laughs) And then when I was 30, I tried to write another novel which I finished when I was 38. So, you know, it was there when I was 30. And then I just went about my normal life. I was working in business. I just, you know, I I committed myself to the business world for a number of years. And I suppose the goal in my head was to reach senior management. And I did all that stuff. And then I got there and thought I still have this niggling desire to write. So then I um, did something very dramatic and I retired from the job I was in. I had two reasons I wanted to write, but I also really wanted to see my kids. So both things came together. Um, when I was 38 or 39, then I started writing full time.
0: And that first book was called
1: that was Snugville street. The first book I published was called Snugville street. And what was it? So Snugville street was, uh, set in Belfast. It was, um, set after the conflict in Belfast. And it was about a French exchange. So I had this girl who came from the Shankill area of Belfast and she did a French exchange with a guy from Brittany. Um, So she brought him into her wee tiny uh, terrace house in Belfast. And the the whole premise of it was that her father was in prison for something that happened during the Troubles. And he was about to come home at the same time as the French exchange uh, student arrived. So it's really all about international perspectives. Um, I wanted to take the reader to France and spend a little time in France because I like traveling. So I always like to take the reader on, on a little journey and um, it, it gave uh, people here, I suppose, the chance to see themselves through French eyes because when I was living in France, I was constantly seeing myself through the eyes of French people. So yeah, those international perspectives ran through the, the first two novels. Um, the first novel I actually wrote was the, the one before that. Um, it was called The Belfast Tale in the end. Uh, I kind of had problems naming it, but it came it came um, to be A Belfast Tale. It was also that sort of um, idea of international perspectives, and I took the reader on a wee journey to Washington, D.C. in that one.
0: So A Belfast Tale you wrote first or second?
1: I wrote A Belfast Tale first.
0: It It wasn't
1: my first novel, I I had a little novel that was, I think it's always useful for people if anyone's listening this and interested in writing, to have a little practice novel that you play around with first. So I had a practice novel, which um, was the one that I started when I was 30, and that'll never be, I'll never go back to it again, because it it just was, it was almost like, um, you know, you're doing your warm up when you're exercising, I think that novel is like a warm up.
0: Very good. So you had a Belfast Tale, you had Snugville Street. They were both set in Belfast and they involved not the same character set, but a few characters carried over. From there, where did you go next? Did you go back to school or did you keep writing or what happened?
1: Okay. So just to, to um, mention something about what you said there about the two novels and the same characters, what happened was I sent a Belfast Tale out to about 20 readers and they all gave me feedback on the novel and they all loved this character called Jean. So that was really useful information for me. And I knew I had to write a novel and Jean ends up being um, the protagonist's mum in uh, Snugville Street. So that was a a useful thing to do if anyone else out there um, is trying to figure out how to start this whole journey. Um, The next part of your question was what I did next. So I, I took my time out, it was meant to be a year, I was going to be a writer and then I was gonna go back into business again. So I tried to go back into business again, but it just didn't work out for me. Um, I really wanted to write. During that period when I was in business, I actually published with you, with Leshnot Press, um, the Irish Danson uh, book, so that was a history book. And uh, so that was a wee bit of a diversion for me, but um, we, you know, there, there was a, a good reason to publish that book. I thought there was a very important story to tell about these amazing, primarily women, who had um, kept Catholic and Protestant children together throughout the Troubles and throughout the 20th century, really. Uh, that was a project I did obviously with you. And then um, at one point I was getting deeper and deeper into this Ulster-Scots thing. So Snugville Street and a Belfast here, were written in English. Um, but I started to pepper work with Ulster-Scots words and then it grew and grew and I became more interested in it. And long story short, I'm in my third year of a PhD. (laughs) (laughs) And um, uh, the Ulster Scots (laughs) thing is part of that PhD. So I'm doing some work, for example, on female novelists who write in either Scots or Ulster Scots. I'm also doing some work on diary novels. That's going back to those Adrian Mole days. And then a bit sort of um, unusually, I am doing some work on um, these Gaelic bards who lived in Larne. I discovered that in the 1500s and early 1600s, we had these um, hereditary bards. And uh, I was surprised. I didn't know that Larne was one of the main centres of bardic activity in Ireland during that period. And I thought that was interesting. Larne would sort of tend not to be known for those type of things. So that's the, the three sort of research areas in my PhD that I'm doing. That's all resulting in a novel, which is a diary novel very by good. A woman who is obsessed by the Gaelic bards and she um, and her family, some of her family members speak in Ulster Scots. So it all comes together in the novel. Very
0: good. So your PhD, you're you're Slightly modest, you're actually the Writer-in-Residence at Ulster University. It comes with a title. It's not just doing anything. Oh, yeah,
1: I'm not modest. I just forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I, I, it's funny because I've been the Writer-in-Residence, and I have gone out to do some events and so on, done lots of Zoom calls. But because we've been, we, we had um, a couple of years here where we were really badly affected by lockdowns, so I'm not used to saying it in public. Um, it's written down. I never ever get the chance to say it. So I'll say it. that, yes, I'm Writer-in-Residence of Ulster University. <laughs>
0: and because of the Writer-in-Residence status, and actually even before you had that Writer-in-Residence status, you ran local writing groups. You, la- you, you applied for grants to get local uh, funding for producing local books using local authors. And in fact, a couple of the book reality authors like Jim Shields and Tom Jobling, Uh, and Morna Croft, they've all contributed to little anthologies that you got funding for. So you've not just been a writer, you've actually been a producer of anthology works as well.
1: Yeah, um, at one point I did try to go freelance. I didn't go into all this detail with you, I just got to the PhD. Before the PhD, um, I did try and go freelance and unfortunately, the whole creative world in the UK just completely exploded overnight because of COVID. So all these freelancers had no money coming in and um, it just, it was, I think I had a period of a good maybe year and a half maybe with no work. Um, So just before that, I did that project that you've talked about. I did a local project. I did some regional projects as well. Um, across Northern Ireland. Um, I worked with you on the North Star publication with Women Allowed. It was a voluntary project for all of us, of course, because we came up with the idea of doing it at the beginning of the very first lockdown. So Women Allowed is a group of, it's a community really um, across Northern Ireland uh, made up of female writers. I, I was chairperson of Women Allowed at that time when I came up with the idea of doing the book, but I think I would come up with the idea of doing the book anyway. It was a, it was a fun idea.
0: It was a great project to do because they you know when you get some of the best writers in Northern Ireland sending you short stories and extracts from poetry, that the editing was a breeze, the putting it together was a breeze. North Star is one of my favourite projects that Leshnot Press were involved in and actually was a spur for Leshnot Press to move from the hybrid assistance model that we used to always use into the traditional model of publishing, so that was that was good. As all of that was going on, you also produced Dusty Bluebells at, in the last year or so. And Dusty Bluebells is a family drama set in Larn, narrative in English, dialogue in Ulster Scots. But as you said, this latest project has taken that story. And is it a straight translation or have you remastered it a little?
1: So I've called it an adaptation. Um, I had some very good advice from an editor at one stage that the novel should end in 1948. And, of course, that was you and I ignored you. I shall
0: be modest, thanks very much. And,
1: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I added in this, the advice you had was that the, the next bit's good but put it into a, a different novel. And I think just I was exhausted. At that time, I had, I had you know, spent three years on the novel while working full time and doing the Irish dancing book and I just wanted to get it out there and end, I, I like to end a project. And so I I just, um, you know, if you've worked hard on something, you just want to finish it. So I wanted to get to the finish line without making any changes. But then I had time for reflection and lots of time to think about um, how I can integrate language into what I'm doing as well. I was inspired by a couple of novels. Um, One of them was called Buddha Da by Anne Donovan. It's written completely in Scots. It's a bit like *Train Spotting* and maybe wouldn't be something that I would ordinarily read, but Buddha Dad definitely would be my um, sort of uh, type of novel. Um, it's a, a girl's dad becomes a Buddhist in Glasgow. He's a painter and it's, you know, it was really good fun. I was, you know, reading back through some of the more well-known Scottish novels um, of the 20th century as well. and thinking to myself, some of these novels could be written completely in Scots, but the writers obviously had to hold back because of publishing considerations and the beautiful world we live in right now is that means that authors can experiment a little bit more because we have so much so many more options um, in terms of publishing and so I thought I can do something and experiment here and I know that I'll get it out there somehow whether I self-publish or use the book reality experience which I, I've used before to help me with self-publishing or try and sort of go a more traditional route and thankfully you agreed to do the traditional publishing with this one.
0: Well, I think this book's important because there's, there's, a, there's an elephant in this room, for anybody that's listening to this, that knows about the Northern Irish language um, debates that have raged over the last few years. I mean, we've got English and we've got Irish Gaelic. Some people would say that Ulster Scots is a dialect. Some people would say it's a slang. But there are words within Ulster Scots that are not used elsewhere. They're not a dialectic word. They are derived from Gaelic or Gaelic and a mismatch of English put together over four centuries. And the important thing isn't that some people dismiss it. The important thing is that there is a section of the community in Northern Ireland that believes that Ulster Scots is a language. And therefore, who should be the ones to deny them their belief that that is a living, thriving language that was used up and down certain areas of the northeast Antrim coastline, especially, over a period of centuries. So I think it's important that the Ulster Scots version of Dusty Bluebells comes out because it is a language, and they can argue whether it's a dialect or a language, I don't really care, but it's a spoken version of language that you and I grew up with, but the next generation probably aren't going to hear.
1: Yeah, well, my kids hear all the time from their grandparents, but if they were dependent on me, they wouldn't hear it as much. They hear Ulster English, as it were, from me. So I, um, my, my language has lots of Scots references in it. They hear those all the time. They, they hear the odd Cali and dinny as well. Depends how tired. If I'm really tired, I'm, I, I slip into Ulster Scots. Um, because you kind of when, when you grow up in a community and you have a dialect as such, um, and you're, you know, you go into a standard setting like a school, you have to kind of put on an act. And this is what we're doing all the time. You're, you're just constantly, and if you let my guard go down, then you'll hear me speak a little bit more Ulster Scots when I'm completely tired. So I don't get involved in the whole language dialect debate because, to be honest with you, I thought it was a dialect for years as well. So I'm not going to judge anyone who thinks it's a dialect. It's only through studying and understanding that I've come to the conclusion that it, it might well be a language. Um, that Certainly in, in the Scottish side, you've got literature going back to the 1400s written in Scots. I've been hooking around the Agnew family, the Agnew Gaelic Bards that I told you about. I've been going through loads of stuff. You know, they wrote in Gaelic, obviously, but I've seen letters from Agnews that are written in Scots in the 1500s, 1600s and so on. And that just that journey that I've been on, it, it reinforces, uh, you know, the, the people who know it's a language and say it's a language. They've been on that journey before me, and so I've I'm now replicating what they have done in the past, and I'm beginning to see that this is a language. But I wouldn't force that on anyone. What confuses me sometimes is when people say, "Oh, it doesn't exist. There's no such thing as auster Scots." It's a bit of an existentialist dilemma because. Something is being described <laughs> that doesn't exist, but clearly to say it doesn't exist, it has to exist. <laughs> you know, it's um, a funny thing.
0: My decision on it was clear because previously the KDP, the Amazon publishing um, platform, Ingram Spark, Lightning Source, various other publishing platforms uh, were slow to come to the ability to be able to publish Farsi and Arabic, which obviously read the opposite to the standardized, westernized way of left to right. And yet, they had Scots as a language choice in the publication metadata that surrounds a book, before they had Farsi, the you know the Persian language out of Iran. Uh, now, thankfully, all of those exist. But the drop downs where you go, what language is this book in? All of them have Scots as a language, not Gaelic Scots. So. It's obviously a recognised thing in the Scottish side, and Ulster Scots is simply a derivation of that Scots language. So I I don't perceive and and I I don't see the reason for the arguments. Um, With regards to writing, which you've done a lot of, do you have any quirks? Do you have to get up at six in the morning and start writing for two hours with a glass of gin beside you? Or is there... (laughs)
1: definitely would not work if there was Jim beside me I I would have no brain at all I work best in the morning when I left work back in I think I started full-time writing in 2015 and my wee girl was at nursery school and she was only in for a few hours in the morning it wasn't even it was like two and a half hours or something so I would have to drop her off at nine and you couldn't be early it had to be nine so I would like be sitting impatiently (laughs) sometimes at five past nine thinking open the doors because I've got to write and then I would run down the road and write like a mad woman and then go back up the road at, um, just after 11 to pick her up. So those two hours um, were so important. I was really, everything was really lucid. I was clear-minded and I wrote Snugville Street like that. And I think Snug- Snugville Street was quite successful. And I think you know part of its success is how clear-minded I was and how I had the time to dedicate to it and how committed I was. Some people write all day and all night. I don't think you need to do that. I think it's, you know, people give themselves really strict targets sometimes. I think it's more important to think and to make time to think, to go up into the mountains and go up into the hills and um, spend time in isolation sometimes as well. And just give yourself that breadth of thought because what you're writing won't be very thoughtful if you're constantly in a rush and you're giving yourselves these targets. That's my opinion, although I do see pretty much everyone has these targets of so many words per day and so on.
0: Do you plot all your books out or do you have an idea of start and finish and it's organic or are you set to a whole bunch of post-it notes with a plot line already worked out before you start?
1: Well, um, Snugville Street, I was very organized and I probably, I had an idea of how it was going to go, um, in terms of plot. I didn't actually sit and write it all down, but I, I you know, I knew the end before the beginning, I suppose. With um, some other novels, they've been more. Um, what was the word you used? Organic. Um, I think the planning actually works best. So the PhD novel, in order to apply for the PhD, I had to hand in a plot draft. And that was the hardest thing I've ever had to write because I had no idea at that point what that novel would look like, where it would go, anything about it. And I had to give the most enormous detail and that's worked really, really well. And um, I would recommend that if you can force yourself to sit down and spend a couple of days figuring out what your novel's gonna look like and then take some time away from that draft and go out for a few walks. And I, I find personally that most of my writing happens on walks because i'll be walking along in my own wee world and you know inspired by the landscape and the things around me stuff will happen that comes to me and you're constantly inspired by the things and the people around you it can be a wee conversation it can be i'm walking up the road bump into somebody who you haven't seen for 20 years have a conversation and i'm like oh that's an interesting thought and you know it, it it works like that and then go back to that draft um, plan and plan and fix it up a little bit. So it is quite useful. But there's a there's constantly an organic thing happens naturally anyway. Things come to you as a writer. I, I don't know how much control I personally have over the writing. There is a sort of, I, I don't want to sound too silly when I say there's a spiritual element to it, but there, there definitely is because some of the writing I don't feel that I'm in control of. Things come to me and they probably come to me because I've experienced them in the past or something or I've read a book or there's probably some rational explanation for it but sometimes it just feels like things just hit the page
0: so that's like (laughs) that's almost like channeling and again many of our authors have spoken about the fact that they've invented characters but the characters tend to take leaps off on their own and you kind of just have to go with them and see what's going to happen to them and whether that's a a channeling of imagination or remembered thought or whatever, but there's definitely where you sit down and you write something and you think, where did that come from? Almost like driving a car and realising that you've got to street A when you hadn't even realised you'd left your house.
1: Dusty Bluebells, the Scots edition. Dusty Bluebells, full stop, in fact. I have a character called Maisie. I knew I wanted to write a novel set in the 1940s in Larne, and that was inspired by growing up around lots of people, aunts, friends you know people in the community who grew up in in that period so these are people who were born maybe around 1915 and they inspired me because that's my grandparents generation so I knew I wanted to write in that general period after the second world war but I just didn't know where this was going to go and I started talking about it I, I had this conversation on Facebook at the time Facebook was huge and everyone was you know um corresponding with me on Facebook all the time. And this woman came forward and said, I have an aunt who lived in the Waterloo Road and she wrote a diary. And I thought, oh my goodness, what are the chances? This is like a really um, low income community and people didn't sit around writing diaries. They were hardworking people who they, they, they had good times. They played music, all the rest of it. But I just, I didn't think that someone would come along and give me a written diary. And it was beautifully written. Um, So I was able to use the diary for inspiration to create another character. So the first character I created was Maisie, who was based on sort of reality. She was based on my lived experiences. Through this diary, I was able to create this more sort of um, spiritual character, Sally, who um, is not sort of as connected with reality. She has lots of what you might call supernatural experiences. Now, the diary didn't have those supernatural experiences by any means, but I don't know what it was. It just led me in that direction. And I was able to pull little details from that diary and um, make the realism more real in some parts, but then drift off into this other world. And I I like that balance of a bit of realism and then just away with the fairies for some parts as well.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. In the research then for Dusty Bluebells, which includes this journal that you got from the Waterloo Road, What was the most interesting fact you discovered about the Larn of the 1940s?
1: Well, this is where I fell down a bit of a rabbit hole. Because I had, when I started doing the novel, I thought, well, I'm going to um, definitely have an Irish dancing scene. Uh, You know a little bit about the Irish dancing world, or a big bit about it, because your mother was an Irish dance teacher. And actually the timing of this would have been just when she was about to set up her school. So 1948, would that be...
0: That was actually almost. um, She set her first school up in 1947, 48. Yes.
1: Yeah. Well, the novel actually, I must say, opens in 1945, but it finishes in 1948. But I wanted to have a scene to do with Irish dancing uh, and started to research it. And then I suddenly realized the first festival alarm was actually 1928. And I was really surprised. I don't think anyone really knew how old the festival tradition of Irish dancing was that led to a whole load of research that became the Irish Danson book <laughs> and actually the scene that about the Irish Danson in the novel could pretty much easily be taken out um, but what I did to keep it in because I really wanted to keep it in was I, I put a little um, part of the story in it that you know would drive that subplot forward and uh, kept the Irish Danson scene there but it's kind of in the background now whereas it was maybe in the foreground before And I did then what I actually really needed to do, and that was to write that history book on Irish dance instead. So those two projects kind of ran concurrently.
0: We will put a picture up of the Irish dancing book. As I'm talking, it'll appear somewhere around here, but the Irish dancing book, which is the festival story, the story of Irish dancing in the north of Ireland from the middle of the 1800s through the um, Gaelic revival all the way up through the Troubles and how certain women And obviously I'm biased because my mother was one of them, uh, kept that tradition alive and was able to hand it through to the custodians of the tradition that are there now. So it's personally it was a a very important project for us uh, to help you with and to bring it to publication because they're coming to an end of their generation and if those stories weren't captured by someone like yourself they would have gone forever. So yeah we were very happy to be able to help.
1: I think that's um that sort of demonstrates uh how you should approach publishing books I think if a book has to be written you know that's an important thing uh when I I I talked about the practice novel I did and I looked back at it and thought to myself one day that novel doesn't have to be written I just knew it didn't have to be so I think that's the difference between um you know some people maybe wait around for years for a publisher and in terms of Snugville Street, I felt I have to go now. This has to be out there now. It, it just felt important. Um, and that's maybe how people should make their decisions on, on whether to publish or whether to wait or what to do. Just ask yourself the question, does this book have to be written?
0: I find it interesting that you've gone from, you know, you were a successful businesswoman in a in a multinational company you then decide that you're going to sit down and write this book. You have the practice warm-up book that doesn't need to be published, but you had to write it to get the practice. But those series of steps have led you to now be the writer-in-residence in in Ulster Uni. You know, to say that everything happens for a reason is is glib, but in your case, with the books, it really has been one step after the other that'll lead you to here.
1: Yeah, I think I was committed to it. You know, jumping out of a well-paid job is scary and I have regrets all the time. I sit here sometimes and think to myself, I'm in trouble. I've got no pension. What have I done? And um, living on a really low income is okay. You, you can manage to do it, but it is very, very hard. And at the minute I'm obviously on a student grant. So it is difficult. Now in the beginning I had savings and I was able to set aside money to do this. So I would advise anyone who's maybe in a similar situation to what I was, if you're comfortable in your job and um, in terms of, you know, finances and you can set aside a wee bit of money to take that leap. Um, If you feel that you have to do it, then do it. I felt I had to do it. It was a a compulsion. I couldn't wait any longer. Uh, I'd been, you know, I'd gone through my 20s and 30s with this desire and this need to write and I'd been denying myself. And in fact, I was... I felt that I was just um, constantly writing really dry, boring emails (laughs) because they were like business emails. And I was being really affected by business speak. Um, International business speak is horrible. And there were just so many little phrases and and so on that were starting to crack me up. And I I thought, no, I need to escape to a more literary world. So, yeah, I I just needed to get away from that. It was um, starting to affect me. (laughs) I mean I could go back in the end you know I have I've been running the business since I left I've been self-employed since I left work um I've had to really up my game in terms of business you know when I was working in an IT company there was a big marketing team that took care of websites promotion everything and then suddenly I was a one-man band I was doing all the sales all the marketing all the writing all the production everything um, so you're still very much a business person when you're a writer. And I know there's lots of writers around Northern Ireland who work as facilitators and they go out and um, run courses and they maybe run festivals and so on. Um, and, you know, they're still using their business head, as it were.
0: Yeah, because people have to remember, it's uh, if you are going to publish a book, it's a publishing business, it's not a publishing hobby. Well, it shouldn't be a publishing hobby. It should, you know, it should be approached as a, whether you're doing it self-publishing or whether you're doing a traditional publishing model like Threlational Press, you, you have to approach it as a professional. So you can't be an amateur writer in residence at Ulster University. You have to give it your full professional commitment and people need to remember that. Listen, thank you ever so much for taking all the time out of your morning, my afternoon, for having a chat about all of this. I'd like to end with our fifteen question quickfire questionnaire, which is kind of based on the actor's studio. You'll be fine. editing is a great thing if you if you have to pause and think about it, we'll make it look like it's seamless. Do you want to have a go? yeah
1: we'll have a go
0: great stuff so usually I introduce this as you know XX, author of X, but you're Angeline King, author of a plethora of books, but we're going to say. Angeline King, author of Dusty Bluebells, (Scott's edition. Here we go. What is your favourite book?
1: Anna Karenina.
0: What is your least favourite book, if you've got one?
1: I would never have got Beyond the First Chapter of a least favourite book.
0: <laughs> Good enough. Have
1: one? Sorry.
0: <laughs> Creativity, creatively, I'll, I'll try and say that word again. Creatively, <laughs> there we go. Creatively, or in life in general, what turns you on? Walking. And what turns you
1: off? Plastic.
0: Plastic people <laughs> or plastic bags?
1: Um, well, if you're out for a walk and there's plastic anywhere, plastic bags, plastic in the trees, <laughs> sometimes even, yeah, and it'll not go there, you want a quick round, so let's...
0: That's good. Let's um,
1: summer, <laughs>
0: summer or winter? Summer. On a completely free day to do anything you want,
1: I want to go back and say spring or autumn. By the way, those two seasons aren't the two that I love. Autumn and spring. Okay.
0: On a completely free day to do anything you want to, who do you spend it with?
1: Uh, Probably the kids, or my mum and dad, or my husband, or...
0: Pick your favorite.
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, right now, if I had um, an hour, I would go and meet my cousin Stephanie for a wee cup of tea.
0: Good work. Mountains or oceans? Oceans. what is your favorite movie amelie beautiful movie if you've only got one song to listen to for the rest of your life what is it
1: um i can think of an album but I'm, i i just immediately thought of pablo honey when you said the word song that you the album radiohead don't know why i haven't listened to it for years but just that's what happens when you do these instant things <laughs> excellent
0: so that's pablo by radiohead
1: Pablo honey, yeah, uh-huh.
0: Okay. Who makes you laugh the most? My dad.
1: <laughs> laughing just saying <laughs> my dad. <laughs> what
0: smell do you love?
1: I should really say my mum too, because that, that that's really bad that I just said him, because she's funny too. What smell? Nature. See.
0: Okay. What smell do you hate? Bleach. Other than the professions you've done, what would you like to attempt?
1: Ah, I feel like I'm not doing this as a profession just yet. I'd like to be an author. I'd like to be a novelist (laughs) Okay, because I'm not making a living from it yet. So it's kind of still a a dream. Okay.
0: And what profession would you not like to do?
1: I'd make a really rubbish tax consultant. I applied for a job once years ago as a tax consultant, that's how I know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you get to the pearly gates?
1: Come on in. Do you want a wee cup of tea? <laughs>
0: <laughs> very good. And on the assumption that God's a large man, or woman indeed, they <laughs> would be very happy <laughs> <Of course. laughs> Listen, Angeline, thanks (laughs) so much for taking the time Uh, we're looking forward. Dusty Bluebells will be out later this year uh, around about October the 14th. So depending on when this interview airs, it may already be out. And I see you've got your proof copy there. Uh, So thanks again. Thank you very much. Hey, thanks for listening to this latest episode of Book Realities, our Interviews with Author series. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and turn your notifications on so that you never miss any content updates from us. If you like this episode, leave us a rating or a review as it really helps the podcast's visibility, as does passing the pod on to any writers or author friends that you may have who you know will be interested in it. And join our exclusive mailing list at www.bookreality.com. The next episode will be released this time next week, but until then, stay safe and well. All the best.